Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. I'm joined today by Madeline Davies, Deputy News Editor, Tim Wyatt, Digital Editor and Hattie Williams, News Reporter. Today we're talking church plants. Holy Trinity Brompton has been planting churches for the best part of two decades. Until recently, this has mainly been in London. But now it seems that more and more dioceses want a piece of the action. Madeline has written this week's cover feature on how HTB church plants are burgeoning around the country. Madeline, can you tell us why you thought this was an important area to investigate? Uh, yes, so this has been uh, something that we've wanted to look at for a while. I think it's fair to say that HDB has had a significant influence um, on the Church of England, particularly in recent years, um, through its church plants. Um, as you said, more and more dioceses now have a church plant linked to the church. Um, and we really wanted to look at um, the reality of those church plants. Um, over the years, we've heard sort of very mixed feedback about how people in the church feel about their presence and we really wanted to um, try and find out um, what the reality was. You've spoken to Nikki Gumbel, you've spoken to bishops, a lot of clergy, people on the ground. Can you tell us something about how the process works? Do HDB send out teams to snoop around for big empty churches or do they wait for the bishop to, to call them and invite them in? So I think my understanding is that legally they have to have an invitation from the bishop. I don't think it's possible to come from London and impose a church plant in another diocese. But it's also fair to say that um, I don't think a team from the HDB network would um, take up any church. I think there are conversations about the kind of church that they are willing to plant in. And they're quite open about that fact. So they do look for somewhere central with good transport links and ideally close to students. Um, so I think, um, you know, it's clear that they don't go just anywhere. A lot of people worry that this is some kind of like territorialism or kind of a spreading empire. Do you get the feeling from people within the HDB movement that they see themselves as a kind of church within a church? Or are they simply just trying to share what they've learned works in London? Um, so I talked to Nikki about um, remaining within the C of E because the Bishop of London had said to me how grateful he was that HDB hadn't gone independent. Um, and Nikki talked about how he's an Anglican and how he loves the Church of England um, and that there was never any question of um, becoming an independent church. Um, something they also talk a lot about is generosity. Um, and certainly Rick Thorpe talked a lot about how church planting is giving away. It's giving away people, it's giving away money. It's the Bishop of Islington, Rick Thorpe, yes. Bishop for Church Plants. So yeah. HDB um, tends to give a, a £50,000 sort of pump priming grant um, to its plant. So, you know, there is a financial generosity there as well. Um, and that's certainly how um, Rick Thorpe's position as the Bishop of Islington was um, promoted, I guess, was around we have um, we have this richness in London, um, we'd like to be generous, and if other dioceses want to learn from our experience, then we're very happy to come and share that. You also spoke to quite a few people who've actually established church plants. Um, how did they find the experience? Did they encounter much opposition when they planted? Yeah, I was quite struck by how honest they were about the process. Um, people were really frank with me um, about the fact that they had encountered suspicion, um, and really quite a strong degree of hostility in some cases. Um, so they talked about how difficult a journey it had been and in some cases much more difficult than they had anticipated. Um, interestingly, Mark Elston G, who heads up a lot of this work at HDB, said that one of the things they've learned is to kind of warn diocesan bishops 
um, you know, yes, we're willing to come and partner with you, but you need to anticipate opposition and sort of have a plan for dealing with that. Um, so certainly um, that wasn't a universal experience. There were other cases where the congregation had actually reached out and really welcomed a partnership. But in others, priests um, have had to deal with um, opposition. And, and even from deanery colleagues, it's, even deaneries haven't necessarily um, welcomed an HDB plant with open arms. Do you sense that diocesan bishops these days are more open to an HTB plant than they would have been five or ten years ago? And also how significant is, is Justin Welby's um, vocal support for church plants? Uh, I know when Justin Welby was appointed, he was kind of celebrated as um, this is an HDB win. Um, I actually think far more significant has been the influence of the Bishop of London or the former Bishop of London, Richard Chartres. Um, he was absolutely instrumental um, in supporting um, HDB church planting within the Diocese of London. Um, so I think it's really um, his Episcopal influence that's determined the journey to some extent. Um, I think it's hard to sort of comment on whether diocesan bishops are more keen now. I think it's a question of now it's a possibility. Certainly a good number um, are keen to welcome an HDB church plant. Um, and interestingly, that includes bishops who don't go from the evangelical wing. So the first HDB plant outside London was actually in the Diocese of Chichester um, in Brighton. Um, so Dr. Martin Warner has has welcomed their presence in his diocese, and he's certainly not from an evangelical background. He's very much an Anglo-Catholic traditionalist, isn't yeah. he? What about the criticism that church plants essentially shrink other churches by drawing people away from perhaps struggling parish churches to the to the latest yeah. thing that's going on? So that's something that's been um, looked at in um, a small number of studies, which I did look at. And I think it's fair to say that um, probably the largest um, proportion of the congregation of a plant will have come from other churches. I think there's no getting away from that fact. Certainly in other cases, you know, there are large numbers of unchurched and de-churched people who are coming along. So it does vary by church. But I, as I say, there's no getting away from the fact that um, a large number of people will move from other churches. Um, and people gave me um, sort of varying takes on that. Um, some people would say those people perhaps weren't particularly happy in the church where they were and might otherwise have left church altogether. And so coming to an HDB church plant kept them within the C of E. Better than leaving altogether. Exactly. Um, and another theme was that people would say, actually, you know, church leaders don't own people. They are free to go where they want to go. And if they want to go to a different church because it's more in keeping with how they want to worship, um, what they enjoy, then you, you can't put up walls, you can't stop people from doing that. And if that's where they want to go, then they have the freedom to do that. They attract a lot of students, don't they? Church plants are often positioned quite near campuses. Um, yeah. Tim and Hattie, you were students not too long ago. Did you <laughs> ever attend church plants or see friends go to them? Uh, yeah, I studied in London, actually, and um, a number of, I guess, the majority of a kind of evangelical uh, Christian students would probably go to, well not a majority, but a significant number of them would go to churches in the kind of HTB family. Um, one of the things I think is particularly interesting is is not just the way that um, they uh, kind of famously or infamously even attract Christians to leave their current churches, which we've talked about, but also the way, as an example of students, is where they attract Christians who move into an area. Yeah. So I think mm. a huge amount of the growth that church plants see, particularly in a place like London where there's a huge amount of churn of people, mm. is not just quote-unquote stealing Christians from other churches, but it's when a Christian moves to London, whether for university, for a job, they've just got married, 
they're so much more likely to go to a, an HDB church plant, which is buzzy, exciting, it's got a great website, it's famous outside of the city. And I think that's true as well. If you go, if you move for a new job into Bournemouth, you probably already, might have already heard of the HDB church plant in the city centre and not of some of the other more established parish churches. I think that's definitely the case. I mean, we wrote about um, a church plant last week in um, Borden, um, and they were, they're a, an ex-army town um, and they're having a lot of redevelopment, huge housing estate being built, sort of 3,000 homes and they were building a, a, you know, a church plant for that very purpose to mm. address that brand new community, many of whom would probably be sort of young families and you know, sort of cafe style uh, ministry um, to reach out to those new people rather than sort of, as you say Tim, pulling people away. Mm. I think one thing it's sort of fair to bring in there is that um, HDB church plants do tend to have a very strong online presence, sometimes manned by volunteers, um, but very impressive websites. And one of the feedback uh, pieces of feedback that I got from a church in Norwich was that perhaps people are so attracted when they Google church in, in Norfolk that they never even consider um, looking around, which is a challenge for other churches. Um, is that the some of the money they get, the investment they get from the centre? Actually, I mean, I think in this case, the website was actually run by volunteers. Right. So it's it's not really a financial question. It's just having people on your team who are able to do that work for you. Mm. Um, and, you know, the vicar um, in Norwich did explain that he thinks, you know, not everyone's willing to cross the doorstep of a church. They are willing to Google. Mm. Um, I think it's also a fair challenge to other churches to improve their website and the reality is that when you google many church of england churches mm -hmm. the website is not up to date you can't find when the service is um and that probably is something which churches really do need to consider and, and which hdb um you know has sort of pioneered um it's not a very good reflection on um their willingness to reach out either because it just kind of when you look at these websites, as you say, they are out of date, and but they also look very stale. And some people might think that's sort of a reflection of the um, the ministry there as well. So, mm -hmm. not perhaps very inviting. Mm -hmm. It's certainly my experience. I remember a number of years ago when I moved into a new town, knew nothing about the kind of church scene there. The first thing you do, of course, is you go and Google Tunbridge Wells churches, and the ones that you're most attracted to are the ones which have you know, for better or for worse, an interesting and up-to-date and a modern-looking website. You know, it, people tell me, you know, it's the equivalent 30 years ago of you wouldn't have your church sign outside with peeling paint and the old vicar's name on and not have the new service times on. In the same way, why should churches expect to be able to attract newcomers in in 2017 if they haven't got a website which is fit for purpose? One of the things, Madeline, your feature also highlights is that very few church plants are led by women. I think just one, is mm -hmm. that right? Why do you think this is, and does HTB think this is a problem? Yeah, so interestingly, um, talking to Nikki Gumbel about this took up a lot of our interview. Um, it's something which he was very willing to talk about um, and actually seemed quite frustrated about. Um, I think there are many reasons why we've got to this point, um, why there are so few women leading church plants. And I really think to address that, there's probably going to have to be some, some very frank conversations um, about those factors, um, whether it's questions of culture, history, theology. Um, I think it's about more than identifying um, a woman who you think could lead a city-centred plant and encouraging her to get ordained. Um, I think there are much deeper questions to be asked um, about culture, really. 
He's asked why city centre because surely there are many. Bishop Philip North has spoken about the need for for church presence on on housing estates in outer parts mm. of cities and and in rural areas presumably. What what is it about city centres that attracts them? I think that's the current strategy um, is to look for city centre plants. Um, as I said, they're honest about the fact that they do look for somewhere sort of iconic with good transport links near to students. Um, interestingly, the sort of second generation plants, so the plants who then plant, mm. are um, in a much more diverse set of places. So um, I spoke to Graham Hunter in Hoxton, um, very near a huge housing estate, um, one of the most deprived parishes in London. Um, so I think the sort of the second generation churches are much more diverse. But certainly they're not in any rural areas, and that's something that people have already raised on social media this morning. I did interview um, the Reverend Alison Jones last year, who's actually pioneering a rural resource church, which which I think is an interesting development. Um, We've also um, read some interesting blogs, including one by the Reverend Andrew Lightbound, who's talking about whether we can sort of adapt this resource church model for market town and rural areas. Is it, is it a fair criticism to say that HDB, at least the first generation of plants, are kind of going for the low-hanging fruit? So they're perhaps taking a, taking a town and they're saying, right, where can we put a church which has the highest possibility of succeeding? Like you mentioned, transport links, student population, um, iconic building. And that's not necessarily a criticism, but is that, is that a fair sum, summary of their strategy? I think that is, it's a fair question to be asked. But I also think a question that we can put back to the C of E is why was somewhere like St Swithin's Bournemouth... Um, which is in a good position, which is a large church, which is near students. Why had that been sold off? Why was it empty? Why was a new Frontiers church in there before HDB arrived? So I think it's sort of fair to bounce that question back and ask, you know, why was it not full before? And another point, I guess, could be we often hear when we talk about the kind of buildings legacy of the Church of England that is far too tilted towards the rural for complicated historic reasons dating back to the medieval era. There are many, many more churches as population shifts um, per person in rural areas and in urban areas. And maybe this is the beginning of a shift where we start to tilt the kind of Church of England back towards where the people are, which increasingly in Britain is in urban areas. And I think there's something about iconic buildings in city centres when they're full with people mm-hmm. it says something to the wider population about the yeah. church in this country and christianity in this country when they're empty perhaps it communicates a different message something which um nicky gumpel likes to quote and i'm not sure what the original source was is that seeing an empty church is like seeing the abandoned palace of of a former king <laughs> um so he uses that phrase a lot and the message it sends i guess when those sort of churches are empty or have been converted into car parks or or pubs. Um, I do think the question about the rural-urban balance is something that we've heard a lot at General Synod, for example. Um, I've already sort of been challenged on social media this morning about the fact that, um, yes, St Peter's Brighton um, is full, but um, you could look at a, a small rural church in the same diocese who actually, by proportion, has more local people in it St Peter's Brighton does and how much of an impact a rural church can have on its community so I think that's you know an an ongoing debate and certainly there are questions about how how we can adapt this model um, or find a new model for rural areas. Something for us to follow up in future. This week the Prime Minister called a snap general election. Bishops have been urging people to vote for candidates who will do most to help the poorest. Um, Hattie, do you think this is a code for vote Labour? 
Um, no, I don't think so. I think there's quite a lot of caution as to um, to say whether or who we should vote for. Um, I think um, there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment about um, obviously Labour leadership um, and Theresa May's long-term plan. So I think it's quite difficult to push people towards a certain decision. I think it's interesting that... Um some bishops, I'm fairly confident I can predict where their political sympathies lie, but I think others are much more coded. Um, and obviously, I, I think it's very unlikely that you'll see any bishop openly come out and endorse a political party. And I think everyone would agree that's probably an inappropriate thing for a bishop to do. Um, but it is interesting how careful some people are to mask their political sympathies and how mm-hmm. others, um, while never explicitly nailing their colours to a mast, mm-hmm. are quite happy for people to be able to read between the lines. I saw a fascinating a series of tweets from a priest actually who said um, contrary to what a lot of his colleagues might say he works incredibly hard to make sure that none of his uh, parishioners have any idea where he mm. sits on the political spectrum to the point at which um, he's careful not even to kind of mention party names in sermons or anything like that mm. and he was arguing that basically whichever side you come down on um, even or even if you just endorse a general perspective, you will alienate some people in his in his congregation. And his job is to be this kind of focus for unity and pastor for all. And so he has to abide by absolute strict neutrality. I think one of the issues for the C of E as well is that I think it's fair to say that some of the bishops who are most vocal on social media probably do tend towards left wing politics, and that could potentially skew people's perceptions of the variety of political views that exist within the House of Bishops. Does anyone think we'll have a repeat of the 2015 election when, I don't even remember, the bishops published, I thought, a very measured, thoughtful letter, and this was seized upon by the Conservatives and by certain parts of the press as as a big attack on the Conservatives and a sort of left-wing conspiracy. Um, do, Do you think we'll see a similar similar conflict between the Church and the Conservative Party this time? I would be surprised, uh, partly for logistics reasons. I mean, I remember going to the launch of that partial letter, which, as you say, was a quite weighty piece of work and hundreds of pages long. Um, There's no way that there is time in two months to pull something like that together. But I think also they probably uh, got their fingers burned a little bit. They produced something which they thought, and I agree, was measured, thoughtful, balanced, nuanced. And it got just immediately sucked into the party political campaigning machine and the, uh, the Tory party and some of their allies in the press immediately span it as a, t- a standard lefty bishops attack on the government. It's more likely we'll see kind of small local scale bishops tweeting, making messages, encouraging people to vote full stop. But I, I doubt we'll see any kind of organised intervention like that again. And there's a lot of talk that this could be a pretty nasty campaign. Do you think we'll have the bishops and, and clergy intervening to say, let's play a bit more fair, let's be a bit more gracious in our language and tone? And do we think would the archbishops intervene on those terms or will they just keep their... Mouth Depends how nasty it. it gets, I think. I mean, if it's anything uh, like the referendum campaign, then I wouldn't be surprised if they um, put their voices in um, in terms of the tone, um, which I know was heavily criticised in terms of the referendum. And this is all sort of based on the same... I mean, it's really about Brexit, isn't it? So um, if it gets into those muddy waters again, then I think, I think the... Um, bishops and potentially the archbishop may even step in. I mean you saw that quite a bit didn't you when um, I remember covering the referendum last year looking at what various church leaders were saying and a lot of it was about you know let's disagree well and quite frankly made not the blindest bit of difference a referendum was an incredibly divisive event and I suspect this election will follow that pattern regardless of what bishops and others say. 
Religion also will be dragged into selection because our Prime Minister Theresa May is a vicar's daughter, as she sometimes reminds us. Um, looking back at her Easter message a week ago, it's interesting to see that how she referenced that, but otherwise it was a fairly bland and vague statement um, about the values that Christians and non-Christians hold alike. Where it's interesting to see, for example, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, openly an atheist, talk about the, the kind of redemption and using Jesus's name, um, in which he tied to his political message of, you know, a revolution and looking out for the poorest in society. And yet it's interesting that Theresa May was quite reserved in her Easter message, and yet is quite happy to wade in on the uh, old Easter egg debate and whether <laughs> you should have uh, Easter in a, a chocolate egg hunt. She did seem to feel very strongly about that, didn't she? Yeah, it seems quite unusual to step in and slightly random, um, and then, as you say, Tim, not to perhaps be as um, passionate or vocal about her own faith in, a, in an Easter message, which is obviously the whole point. The other place that Christianity has got dragged in, of course, is with the Liberal Democrats leader, who are hoping to do well this time, um, Tim Farron, who's an evangelical. Um, I first read his Easter message and thought it was astonishingly um, evangelical, astonishingly Christian, astonishingly Christ-focused for a political message. Um, but then only a few days later, he was um, facing some tricky questions on Channel 4 News about his beliefs on homosexuality and whether that's sinful or not, um, which rumbled on for a day or two. So I wonder whether that will crop up again in the campaign. I'm here with Dave Walker, Church Times cartoonist, known to many of our readers for his often hilarious and insightful takes on, on church life. Um, Dave, you've been working on something else recently, is that right? Uh, yes, so as well as doing my weekly Church Times cartoons, um, I've got a book of cycling cartoons coming out in a couple of weeks, well a couple of months time, beginning of June. How did that come about? So I've been doing the cycling cartoons for a few years now. I put some online on a website and I was approached by a publisher who were interested in a, in a book. And so I spent quite a significant proportion of 2016 uh, doing the cartoons for this book. Church and cycling, are there many similarities? Well, essentially I focus on those as subjects because they are things I know about. And I think to do a good cartoon it helps if you have a good understanding. But I think in both cases there's a certain level of... There's a scope for humour, there's people taking things too seriously, there's things that go wrong. There's a, sort of lots of scope, I think, in both cases for finding finding a joke that can be represented visually, which is essentially what I'm aiming to do. I think a lot of people are interested in, in how you get your ideas. Um, can you tell us a bit about, about that? Yes, that's a good question, and the short answer is I don't have a formula for cartoon idea generation and I wish I did but I do rely a lot these days on people sending me ideas so I have some people who very kindly email me when something comes to them sometimes people on Twitter send me things and sometimes I have mini competitions on my website uh, where I ask for ideas in return for cartoon-based prizes. Um, so I do rely a lot on other people. Uh, and sometimes the, the ideas just come to me and other times 
it's a real struggle right up to the deadline to kind of polish it, polish the cartoon into the right, you know, to get it to be good, strong cartoon material. Do many ideas come to you while sitting in church? And does that make it difficult to worship? Because you're always um, thinking of a potential cartoon I, idea. Some have done, but these days, not usually, no. I'm more likely to to draw upon the years of other church experiences rather than some, just Sunday services. So more often than not, the cartoon will be about, you know, PCC meetings or something in the wider church or something that doesn't, isn't necessarily connected to what's happened that particular Sunday. Mm. So it's, it's fairly unusual that something will happen in church now. I think I used up all those ideas in the first year. And uh, now I'm needing to cast the net slightly more widely. Do clergy ever look nervously when they see you in the congregation thinking you must have your notebook? Um, I suspect most of them don't know who I am if I'm somewhere different. But uh, a, a few times I've, I've diff- I mean, I belong to different churches and occasionally I have featured the vicar of that church mm. uh, in a cartoon. But often I think the clergy that I feature don't realise that they've been included in a cartoon. Can you talk a bit about how you go about actually drawing the cartoon? Is it does inspiration come and it's all on the page, or is it uh, you have lots of different drafts, redrafts? So I see it largely as a writing process rather than a drawing process. So yeah. I keep notebooks, so I'm always jotting things down. Once I've decided on a cartoon I'm going to draw, then it's really a case of jotting down what the different wording with the different captions will be and then the the artwork really is the last the last bit to be done and sometimes i have thought of the the pictures before the the wording's finalized but often it's the wording that that comes first i'm now doing all my cartoons digitally so i'm using a tablet so I draw, the advantage of that is that I can do, draw rough cartoons very, very easily. So I quite often just scribble, scribble approximate pictures down and then sort of edit them uh, gradually. And then once I'm happy, so that on the tablet I can sort of move different pictures around very easily and enlarge things and all sorts of techniques are possible that that were not possible when I was drawing on paper and then eventually I trace over a best copy of the cartoon so and this is all done on the tablet I'm just also interested to ask um, with your church cartoons whether you've always had a, they've always been positively received by people have you ever had people who, who don't find them funny or think that they're not helpful I do occasionally get complaints and when I do, I'm usually quite pleased because it shows that somebody's, <laughs> A, somebody's listening, and that B, I'm, I'm, what I'm drawing has some relevance because it shows that somebody's taken notice. Um, but it's fairly unusual, which, which I see possibly as a bad thing. It, I'd probably be happier if I upset people slightly more often. But uh, occasionally I do get um, complaints but usually about fairly trivial things. Um, so, for instance, implying that people who sit in the front row are keen. <laughs> um, and I had a, a complaint from somebody who said, 
I sit in the front row because I can't hear. I right. resent being portrayed as keen. Right. You know, anyway, it's just things like that. Or I've upset organists, I've upset liturgical dancers, and one or two other similar groups, but nothing too serious. Really. Have you upset any bishops where it's too close to the bone? Um, I've had one or two um, email conversations with bishops, but but that's that's unusual. I think most people would see the cartoons as as a warm and affectionate um, take on the church. Would you say? Also, yeah. But also satirical. Yeah. I. I. My intention is that a lot of the people reading the Church Times are clergy or people who devote their life to working in the church, and mm. what I want to do at the end of a busy week. I want them to look at the cartoon and be encouraged and cheered up, not demoralised. So I don't want to, I don't want the content to be such that people are going to be upset with it unless there's a reason for doing that. If I, if I'm trying to make a point and it upsets somebody, then fair enough. But quite often, I'm just trying to bring a smile and cheer people's people's life up slightly. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find news, analysis, comment, book reviews and more on our website. You can also find our latest subscription offers at churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music this week was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode. And thanks for listening.